Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to see you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by, vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up to glory. Amen. Thanks, Hilary. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. Nice, easy passage after last week. Just tablet is on 10% Annalise, so if it runs out, I'll be signalling to you to change the slides. Uh, speaking of last week, um, you'd be aware that we had, well, those who were here would be aware that we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2. It was a bit of, a, bit of an interesting passage to look at. We had quite a few text message questions that were sent in, and there, there were more than we could answer in the, the five minutes that we'd allowed. And so just at the back table there, just by where the pens are, um, I've got a double-sided sheet of paper which has got a few of the extra questions that we didn't quite get to. I've tried to, to write out some answers uh, to that. Thanks for Cameron and Lauren who helped with that as well. Uh, so if there was a question that you sent in that you didn't get the answer to or um, if you were just interested to see what some of the other questions were that came up, feel free to, to grab one of those and have a read of it as well. 
Well, even if you're not a big fan of cricket, you probably realise that it's not been the greatest year for the Australian cricket team. Uh, they, were, they were playing a, a test match in South Africa earlier this year and uh, one of the players, Cameron Bancroft, was caught with a bit of sandpaper trying to rub the ball, which is illegal. turned out that the captain, Steve Smith, knew what was going on but hadn't done anything. It then turned out that the vice-captain, David Warner, was the one who'd actually given the instruction for this to happen. And then as more and more revelations came out, it really became clear that uh, there'd been a big failure of leadership uh, with Cricket Australia. The coach ended up resigning the next week and there were, there were big questions being asked about the board of the team as why they'd even chosen the vice-captain to be in his role, given that he'd done a few things wrong before as well. So there's a, a failure in leadership, which was really disastrous uh, for the reputation of the Australian cricket team. You can imagine if, if something like that happened in the church, if a, if a leadership failure like that happened in the church that caused uh, the reputation of the church uh, to, be, to be diminished. Uh, but we don't have to imagine it, do we? The number of times that we've seen uh, the word church and the word abuse mentioned in the same newspaper headlines and so many other areas where, um, as a church, we have had leadership that have failed us in some way. And so this is, this is a very real thing for us, uh, particularly uh, cases like abuse. We see that lives are ruined, uh, the reputation of the church is tarnished. And so when leaders fail at a church level, it's really disastrous for the, for the reputation of the church and for the people in the church. Leadership is critical. Uh, so this is a letter, 1 Timothy, we've been looking at it the last couple of weeks. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a friend and ministry partner of his called Timothy. And it's really trying to paint a picture of what the church is supposed to be. Uh, the key verse that we've seen is in chapter 3, verse 15, which we read today, uh, where the, the church is described as God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. We've got this, this picture developing throughout the book of 1 Timothy of a family which is growing in Jesus together and which is on mission for Jesus together and displaying the truth of the gospel to the surrounding world. That's, that's the big picture of 1 Timothy. We've seen already in the last couple of weeks that God wants people to be saved. And so God sent Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners and the church is on mission because God is on mission. And the church is on mission by advancing this gospel message, this great news that even though we're sinners, Jesus came to die for us, to give up his life for us uh, so that we could be saved, so that we could come into a right relationship with God. It's a very relevant message to be thinking about as, we, as we've just heard. We're preparing to plant a church next year. Colin's taking a team of people out to Woodcroft to, to start a new gathering out there where we're seeking to, to be God's household and to be the pillar of truth in a new community. And so the prayerful vision that we have next year is to have two, two church families where we're advancing the gospel, where we're proclaiming this great news about what Jesus has done for us and where we're seeking to make and to grow disciples for Jesus. The, um, the, big, the big focus in this passage here is integrity. Uh, the big, big, really, the big idea here is that the church's integrity is crucial uh, for advancing this gospel, and that the integrity is very much affected by those who are in positions of leadership. Now, 
as a society, we're, we're moving more and more from a modern way of thinking to a postmodern way of thinking, which I'm not going to pretend to be a, a sociology expert, so I'm not going to try and sound like too much of an expert, but something quite profound I read the other day about how this, this plays out in a church context is that a modern, a modern approach to thinking about church is to ask, is this true? Whereas a postmodern approach to, to thinking about church is to ask, is this real? I don't know if you can you see the difference between those. Is it true or is it real? So a, a modern approach is very much to ask, are these facts true? Like, did did Jesus really die? Did Jesus really rise again? Can we trust the Bible? That sort of thing. Whereas we're very much moving as a society more and more to a, is this real? Kind of a mindset, which is to ask. Is this message actually being lived out in the lives of the people that believe it? Do I, do I come along to church and actually see them practicing what they preach, actually see them living this out? So the things, the truth is still very important. It's, it's very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Jesus didn't die and he didn't rise again, then what we believe is in vain. Uh, but more and more people are looking at the church and looking to see, is this real in people's lives? And so the, the integrity of the church is vital. So as you can see in the passage, it's really focusing on the roles of overseers and deacons. So we're going to spend most of our time uh, looking at the roles of overseers and deacons, uh, the character traits of them, and, and what that means uh, for us today. So firstly, who are they? Who are overseers and deacons? They're not official titles that we have at Trinity Church Brighton, so we we don't generally refer to, to, Col- to Cameron as the overseer and Colin as the deacon or whatever. We don't, we don't really use those terms. But the principles behind these terms are still very much um, relevant uh, to, to how we lead as a church. So I don't, I don't think Paul is writing this letter as a way of saying that every church must have official roles known as overseers and deacons, and that's a, that's a rule for the church. Uh, but there's, there's a lot we can take out of the principle uh, behind these roles. Uh, so the, the overseers, uh, we can see here it refers to those who have some sort of teaching authority over the church. Uh, we look through the, the characteristics of overseers and deacons, and you can see there's a lot of overlap between them. Like a, It's worded slightly differently, but a lot of the, the things that are required of overseers are also required of deacons here. The big difference is that the overseer is supposed to be able to teach. We see that at the end of verse 2. So the big distinction we see here is that the overseer is someone who has uh, some sort of teaching authority in the church. Uh, so for us today, uh, we'd, we'd say that Cameron is our overseer, uh, but realistically anyone who has some sort of preaching role here needs to be able to be living up to the standard of overseer. So whether that's Colin, Cameron, myself... Um, if we're up here preaching, we really need to be living up to the standards uh, that we see here. Uh, we see then deacons from verse 8 onwards. Uh, the word for deacon is basically means ministry servant. So it refers to people that serve in some way under the overseer. Uh, so for us, I'd say at the very least for us, that would be uh, people on our leadership team. It would be um, people on the on the staff team. It would be people who are up the front doing band, Bible reading, that sort of thing. It's really anyone who has a role that is, that is representative of the church. Um, 
But really, I'd say this role of overseer here really applies in some sense to all of us who are here as Christians. If we've put our trust in Jesus, if this is our, our home church, we, we really need to be looking at the requirements here and seeing that this actually re- applies to us in some sense. Now we see verse 11 there, there's a reference to uh, women. That might refer either to the wives of overseers or to, sorry, the, the wives of deacons or to female deacons. I think there's, there's a pretty good argument that it refers to female deacons, uh, which would mean that deacon is very much a role for, for both men and women. In any sense, uh, Romans 16, there's a reference to a lady called Phoebe, who is a deacon. And so we see that these requirements for deacons are ones that are, that are being put forth for both men and women who have some sort of serving role under the overseer. Uh, so really, it's their requirements that really should apply to all of us. I think the big factor here is on winning the respect of the outside world. Um, so if, if we look through some of these requirements here of both overseers and deacons, they're not exactly super, super, super elite requirements, are they? Like you look at things like uh, being temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness. They're not, it's not calling us to be some sort of superhuman sort of person. These are very much uh, requirements of Christians living in a way that honours their belief to those outside. So the standards are very much based on outside respect. And so the idea is that we've got people who are representing our church and who are living in a way uh, that reflects the things that we're teaching and the things that we believe as a church. Now, I want to make a, a couple of statements just to, just to balance that out a bit. When we, when we read about this and read about um, how we're to conduct ourselves as God's people, we have to very much read it balanced with what we saw in chapter one, uh, which is that as Christians, we don't live our lives to to try and please God, to try and earn his favor, to try and earn his love. We live very much knowing that that has been done for us through Jesus, that Jesus came to save sinners. Paul says, I was the worst of sinners and Jesus came to save me. And so we live very much knowing that the work has been done for us through Jesus and that what we're doing is responding to him with our lives. Something else as well, we, uh, we were looking at John chapter 15 recently. Cameron preached through that a few weeks ago and we looked through 1 Peter, I think a couple of months before that as well. And a couple of very clear messages that came out of both of those were that as Christians, we're not always going to live in a way that impresses people in the sense that Jesus says, you'll be hated for following me. Uh, 1 Peter, the expectation is that even when the Christians live faithful lives, that they will still be hated at times. And so what what we're seeing here is very much an instruction to honour God with our lives and to live lives that, while honouring God, are as respectable as possible to those on the outside. So basically, letting nothing in our lives contradict our message uh, to those who see us from the outside. So those are the kind of the two, the two counter-statements there. All right, so what does this passage tell us about overseers and deacons? What, um, what is required of them? I've categorized it into to three things, just to make it a bit easier to understand all the instructions that we see there. Uh, the first one is a deep faith, and then there's a wide faith, 
and then there's a long faith. All right, let's start with the deep faith. Uh, so the clear expectation we see here is that there's a real depth of faith uh, that is evident in the lives of those who represent God's church. Uh, so see instructions there like being respectable, hospitable, uh, not getting drunk, not being quarrelsome. Stop for a minute, ref- reflect on those sort of instructions and just imagine if Cameron was to, to fail really publicly and openly in, in some of these ways. If, if Cameron was rocking up to church hungover, if he was getting in fights with people, that sort of thing. Just imagine the, the effect that would have on how the church is represented, both to us and to, to those outside the church as well. Uh, imagine if people on our band or on our leadership team, people that really have a, a representative role for us as a church, were, were living in a way that clearly contradicted uh, some of these instructions here. You can, just, you can see the effect that it has is just to lower the bar isn't it? It lowers the bar for those of us inside church to, to see people acting in this way. And also, it associates the church with that sort of behaviour, doesn't it? People associate the church um, with behaviour that really contradicts the way that the church is supposed to be. See, um, the gospel that we're supposed to be advancing, it, in it, there's a sense in which we advance the gospel verbally. So we, we tell people the good news about Jesus. Uh, but we also advance it in a way visually as well. And you might have heard that quote that gets attributed to St. Francis of Assisi a bit. I think it's um, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. It's a great quote, except that it's, it's not really biblical and he didn't say it. But aside from that, it's, it's fantastic. But there is, there is actually a bit of truth to it. Um, the gospel is news. It's the news that Jesus has died for us, that even though we were sinners, Jesus laid down his life for us uh, so that we could have eternal life with God. That's great news. It's news that people need to hear as well. It's not like behaving in a, in a polite and uh, an honourable way is going to naturally communicate this news to people. We actually need to, to speak this news so that people hear it and understand it. But we can act in a way that just completely denies that message, can't we? Uh, we, can, we can say one thing and we can act in a way that seems to completely contradict that. I was walking uh, through a car park a couple of summers ago. It was a 40-degree day, swelteringly hot. I was walking into, towards a cafe and I've walked past a, a car and I've looked in the car and there's, someone's left their dog in the back seat of a car. It's a 40-degree day, the, the car is swelteringly hot. The poor dog's panting away and looked at that and gone, oh, gee, poor thing. I've looked at the back, the back of the car and this is the most ironic thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a, a bumper sticker on the back seat of the car that says, ban live export. Can you, can you kind of see the, the contradiction there? You've got the, the bumper sticker on the back of the car that says, I care very passionately about animals not being placed in humane, inhumane conditions. And then the backseat of the car, they've left a dog in the backseat of a car on a 40 degree day. Can you, can you see how someone would look at that bumper sticker and look at the car and just wonder how committed that person really is uh, to animal rights? And there's the same danger uh, with the Christian faith, 
as well. So a passage like this is a, a really great reminder of the importance of living out lives that reinforce the, the great news uh, that we have in Jesus. You could preach a sermon really on any one of the, the character traits that Paul mentions here. I thought alcohol might just be a good one uh, to quickly mention of all of them. I was listening to a guy called Peter Jensen give a talk last year. Peter Jensen uh, used to be the Archbishop of Sydney. He's been in ministry for about 50 years, I think. Very, very wise and godly old man. And he was giving just a few of his thoughts um, on his time in ministry and just a few reflections that he had. And, and one, of the, one of the key ones that he said was, I'm just not sure if Christians have gone too far with alcohol or not. His, his point was that uh, Christians, in his experience, um, have just been a bit too comfortable uh, with the way that they've used alcohol, just been a bit too much like the rest of the world. And he was saying, I get that you have to, you have to be part of the world in a sense, but I just wonder if we've, we've taken it too far and we've lost part of our distinctiveness because of that. Uh, so there is that danger of um, just being so similar to the rest of the world that we, we can't stand out. Although I'll balance that out with another story. You've got Peter Jensen, who's giving the, the severe warning. I'll tell another story about a guy called Ryan that I know. Uh, Ryan likes wine. He's got lots of friends who like wine as well. He's the only Christian in the group. He was telling me about how they go out and drink wine together every, every week or two. And Ryan will go out. He'll have one or two glasses of wine and drive home. His friends will have 14 or 15 glasses of wine and not drive home. And obviously, the next morning, the two of them are in quite different sort of physical condition. Um, that's been happening for a while, and Ryan's got the reputation as, of being the Christian one in the group who knows how to act responsibly on a Friday night, to the point where one of the other guys went out one night, had a glass of wine, didn't drink anymore, drove home, and he told Ryan afterwards, I did a Ryan the other night. That's really good, isn't it? The, the Christian guy in the group is actually engaging uh, with the world, but, but doing it in a way uh, that honours the gospel, in a way that is noticed uh, by other people. Uh, I was chatting to a, a guy a few months back, a guy who I, I really respect in ministry, a guy who I've, I've worked with. Uh, it's not anyone here, so don't try and guess or anything. Uh, but he was, he was saying that the big turning point in his faith was uh, when he was 18 years old and uh, he was going out and partying every week and getting drunk and then going to church the next day. And someone confronted him at a party once and said, you're a Christian, aren't you supposed to not be drinking? And it really, it really hit him hard. It really made him realize that uh, he was claiming to be a Christian, but he was actually just going out and living exactly like other people and uh, not honouring God in the way he was doing it. Doing it. So that was, that was the rebuke uh, that he needed to really turn his life around and really really prioritise how he conducted himself. Um, I'm not saying don't drink. I think if you choose to drink, that's, that's totally fine. In fact, we'll see in chapter 5 that Paul actually encourages Timothy to drink. That's a sneak preview for a couple of weeks' time. You can look forward to that. Uh, but if you're getting drunk, I just... I just want to ask why. Is it, is it because it's fun or is it because you want to be accepted? You want to, you want to act normal 
I think if that's the case, it's really seeking approval in the wrong place. And now I realise that nature of alcohol is that some people can't help how much they drink and I don't want to be disrespectful to that or anything, but uh, it's important to, to seek to conduct ourselves in a way that honours God in this way. And I think that the big, the big issue with drunkenness is it's a loss of self-control. God wants us to, to conduct ourselves in a way that honours him. And by getting drunk, we're really sacrificing that control that we have over our, our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And so it really takes away our ability to be able to honour God. All right, so that's, that's a deep faith, a, a depth of faith that's, that's evident in the lives of leaders. The next one is a wide faith. And this is really talking about whole of life. It means being the same person on Monday through to Saturday uh, that you are on Sunday. So you can see this, this is particularly applicable for, for someone who's in church leadership. You don't want the, the minister of the church to be a great leader on Sunday and then to be neglecting family during the week. Uh, but it's really something for us all to take into account, making sure that uh, the person we are on Sunday at church is the same person we are with family, in the workplace, and in every area of life. Uh, we see that this parallel between church and family in verse 5, particularly with the, the instruction to the overseer there. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So it's really making it clear that uh, particularly for the person who is leading the church family, it's important that they're leading their own family well. Uh, so particularly for, for someone who's leading a church with a, with a wife and children as well, making sure that they're aware that their first ministry is to their family. It's no use at all to be neglecting that ministry uh, to be serving the church family better. And so I think that's an important consideration uh, for all of us as church family members to be clear that we have that expectation of our leaders to, to make sure that the people that lead us are actually leading their families well. I think it ties into expectations for ministry children as well. So children um, who are in ministry families, having realistic and fair expectations of them as well, not, not holding them to a different standard because of what family they come from, who their parents are, that sort of thing. I see Robert nodding his head there. You can certainly appreciate that. Um, so just, just understanding that um, children from ministry families are still going through the same learning experiences that other children are. They're still learning who they are as they grow up, all that sort of thing, and having fair expectations of uh, what the ministry family should look like. Uh, so a deep faith, a, a depth of faith that's, that's reflected in the lives of our leaders. A wide faith, being the, being the same person in and out of church. Also a long faith as well. We can see in verse, oh, what verse is it? Verse 6, uh, the overseer is not supposed to be a recent convert. And a, a very similar instruction in verse 10 where... Uh, the deacon is to be tested. I think the, these two verses are, are very much parallel here. And the point is uh, that someone who is in a, a role of ministry representing the church, particularly someone who is leading up front, uh, should be someone who 
has the integrity and has the, the proven track record uh, to do that. Uh, so those of you who have been here for the last couple of years would be aware that uh, we had quite a significant gap uh, between our, our last senior pastor leaving and Cameron joining. Now what we could have done was as soon as John announced he was leaving, we could have put an ad up on seek.com, waited for the first three people to apply and had a look through the resume and picked the best one and we could have had someone ready to go uh, the week after John left. But we didn't do that because it's an important role to fill. And so Cameron would be able to tell you there was a very rigorous process that went into choosing him for that role. And a good choice, in my opinion, because I don't want to get fired with Colin <laughs> tomorrow. So I'm very happy with our, our senior minister, just, just so everyone's aware. Um, but same with Colin as well. Um, I think you, you would have been at the, at the Bay for six to eight years or so before you went to Bible College or something like that. So I, I can call it the Bay because that's what it was called back then. Trinity Church, Brighton now. I'm getting, getting my head around that. Uh, but Colin had, had been along at church for quite a while. He'd been serving in different areas. Uh, he'd been given a lot of ministry responsibility and had proven himself worthy of it before getting chosen. So um, it's not like we just picked Colin's name out of a hat and put him in a leadership role. Uh, same with Stephen, our, our youth leader. He was doing youth and other ministry for, for a long time uh, before he was chosen. And really, all of our, our kids' leaders, our youth leaders, uh, we're very careful uh, choosing people to do those roles uh, because we, are, we know they are roles with great honour and also great responsibility and importance behind them as well. The, the role of the overseer in particular is a difficult one in that there's the spiritual element to it as well. We see in verse 7 there, uh, the overseer needs a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Uh, so I take it um, that's referring to the devil seeking to bring down the overseer of a church in, in some way, which... You can imagine that if the devil is going to target anyone in the church, it's going to be the person highest up, the person whose leadership really affects everyone below. Uh, so it's an important role, and it's, it's a difficult role uh, for that reason. So we should pray for our leaders and, and pray uh, that they will be protected in that way. So there you have it. Overseers and deacons need a deep faith, a wide faith, and a long faith uh, to, to sustain them in their roles, and that's, that's the best way that we can guard our church as far as providing leaders who conduct themselves with integrity, represent the church well, and the integrity of the leaders really flows down to the rest of the church as well. So then we see verses 14 through to 16, where Paul really brings it together and connects what he said here with the whole vision of the church. So verse 15, he's saying, this is how people ought to conduct themselves in the church, these instructions about integrity, he's really showing how this all comes together uh, in how we model the faith to the rest of the world. So these, these instructions for how leaders conduct themselves, it's important because of what the church is. And the church is the family of God, and it's also the pillar and the foundation of all truth. So you kind of, you, you read those verses and you think, surely it's the other way around, surely... The truth is the foundation of the church, not the, not the church being the foundation of the truth. There's kind of a sense in which both of those things are true, though. The, the, the truth of the gospel very much lies at the heart of what we do, and it's really the foundation 
uh, for what we do as a church. As a church, we're seeking to advance the gospel, to advance the, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the hope that we have, and seeking to make and to grow disciples in response to this good news. But there's also a sense in which the church is the foundation and the, the pillar of the truth, in that it's the church that holds up this truth to the rest of the world. Uh, the way that the, the church conducts itself, the way that the church is on mission, uh, the way that the church proclaims this gospel message, and all of this, the church is really upholding uh, this great news of the gospel for the world to see. And so the rest of the world looks to the church and, and sees a reflection um, of what Jesus has done for us. Some of these truths are mentioned in the, the hymn that we see there in verse 16, uh, that Jesus appeared as a man, that he was resurrected, uh, that he was proclaimed, his message was proclaimed, and that people need to hear this news and respond to it. And so our job as a church is to share these truths uh, with the rest of the world, to proclaim them and to display them in every aspect of our church life. See, to advance the gospel, we, we need to be living it out in every way in our lives. That starts with having good leaders who are able to model the faith well. And that, that really flows on to everyone as well. So as I said, that's our vision for next year. It's to have two churches, to have one here in Brighton and one down at Woodcroft uh, where the gospel is being advanced, where the gospel is being proclaimed and where it's being lived out as well, where people are able to see clearly uh, the truth of the gospel not only being proclaimed but also being reflected in the way that we live our lives. Uh, so that's the vision we have, to be a church of integrity, to be led well and uh, to be a church that is reflecting this message to the rest of the world. Uh, so we've seen very much in this chapter here uh, the outside view, if you like. We're seeing what the church is meant to look like to those on the outside and how the integrity of the church is really critical to advancing the gospel. What we're going to see next week is more of the, the inside view, if you like. We're going to see how the way that we're conducting ourselves within the church as God's people really helps each other to build and to grow up in the faith and how we can bless each other in that way. But how about I pray for these things that we've heard today? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We thank you that we can read these instructions to your church that are just as relevant for us as they were when they were written. We pray that we would be suitably challenged and encouraged by these words, that we would be encouraged at the great joy that it is to be your church, to be on your mission, to be advancing your gospel. We'd also be challenged to live lives that honour you and that reinforce this message that we're proclaiming. We pray for our leaders in particular, that they would lead well, that they would honour you in every aspect of their leadership in their lives, and that that integrity would overflow into everyone, that we would all be living lives that honour you, living lives that completely reinforce the good news that we proclaim. We thank you that it's not the quality of our lives that saves us, but it's the quality of your son Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We ask that you would help us to respond joyfully to this salvation, uh, to respond with lives that honour you and that point other people 
uh, to the great news of Jesus. Amen.